All right, let's pray as we get started. Father, thank you for your grace in our life. We are so aware of the fact that if you were not a loving father to us, God, that we would have no shot of life. And so, God, thank you that you have been gracious to us. You are affectionate with us. And God, I pray as we open up your word now that we would uh, constantly see that it is an authority over us, God. Help us to see the truth in it. Help us to submit to that. Help us to um, obey your word, God, because you have given us these commands um, because you love us, not because you don't. And so, God, as we open your word now, we know that if you don't open our eyes, if you don't open our ears to see the truth in it, God, we are so in our own nature rebellious against it. So, God, I pray that you would help us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're going to go back to where we've been uh, several parts in this series called Our Father. And we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, talking about how Jesus told us to relate to God as a father. Now, this series isn't on prayer per se, but we're looking at the Lord's Prayer to see how it teaches us how to relate to God as a father, because Jesus tells, him, uh, tells us to pray to God as a father. And so our contention so far has been when we have God as a father, there's two aspects of having him as a dad for us that we need to understand. The first is him being our father means he has affection for us. He has great affection for us. In fact, any of us who are dads or a parent, you understand how you love your kid? Well, that pales in comparison to how God loves us because God is love. And so he's got great affection for us. And that's what that term, our father, represents. But then the phrase in heaven represents his authority over us. That's the second aspect of what it means to have God as a father. He is our authority. He is our dad who is a king. He's our dad who is in charge. He is the authority over us, and so he has given us his word for us to submit to, for us to have as the authority in our life. And so as we've talked through that in these, this Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to continue that today, and we're going to look at the last couple verses of the prayer. And, and these verses, i got to be honest with you, um, they have stumped people and theologians for centuries because they just seem and feel weird. They, they feel weirdly placed and, and the meaning of them. And so we're gonna look at those today because I don't think they are weird, obviously because Jesus said them. And I think that they're rightly placed and they make perfect sense when we understand what Jesus is saying. So let's look again, Matthew chapter six, starting at verse nine. We'll work our way down to verse 15. Jesus says, Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. I highlighted that because it's gonna go along with verse 14 and 15. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here's the part that is so vexing. Look at verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, can you see why that is a little weird? It sounds like, I guess nobody thinks it weird because no one said yes there, but it sounds like Jesus is giving us a conditional statement here. 
of saying that if you want the Father to love you, you better love some people. If you want the Father to forgive you, you better forgive some people. And it makes it sound like that there's a necessary precondition that must be met in order to receive the love of the Father. But we know, obviously, not only from this context, but a host of other verses, that that's just simply not the case. There is not a necessary precondition that we must meet in order for God to love us. Because there's no condition we can ever meet because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, the Bible says. But what Jesus is saying here, understood correctly, I think, highlights perfectly the argument that we've been talking about having God as our father, having him as our affectionate dad who is our authority. What Jesus is saying here is not so much a necessary precondition of something we must do in order to receive the love of, of the Father. But here's what he's saying. He's saying those who have God as their Father, those who understand the love that the Father has for them, and those who understand that the Father is their authority are going to forgive others. And so it's not so much a condition as it is evidence. As Jesus says, you will know them by their what? Their fruit, right? He's saying, listen, the same grace that came to you is going to go through you to others. And if it doesn't go through you to others, then maybe it didn't come to you. If it doesn't flow through you and how you treat other people, if you can forgive other people, then maybe the grace of the Father never came to you to begin with because if it did come to you, it would go to them. That's the argument. That's the idea. And here's what we need to understand. This thought is so foreign to us as 21st century Western people. You say, what does my relationship with other people have to do with my relationship with God? The Bible says everything. Everything. In fact, you can just write this down as a reference. 1 John 4, 20. John says, who was arguably Jesus' favorite disciple. He referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He says this, if you claim to love God but hate your brother, you're a liar and the love of God is not in you. Whoa, whoa. Right? Like that puts it in a new context. And so we can never just say, oh, I, I, I love God. I'm in relationship with God. It's just me and God. No, it ain't. Because Jesus said in Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. Another is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what I, I want us to see, and I think this is a remarkable context. Jesus is saying, the way you show that God is your father is if you can forgive others. Now, why is that? Two things. One, if you can't forgive others, then you are failing to display the affection that God showed you. You are failing to display the fact that you first, listen to me, before anybody ever sinned against you, you sinned against God. We know this to be true. Before anybody ever sinned against you, you sinned against God. And the Bible says that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ didn't wait for us to deserve forgiveness before he gave it to us. He gave it to us when we didn't deserve it. He showed us an affectionate love of his father. 
And so if we can't forgive somebody, then we're failing to give the same love that we've received, which means we have exalted ourselves above God's authority. Here's the second part. If you and I can't forgive somebody, then we are acting as though we are better than God. Because if God can forgive a human race that sinned against him, how can you and I not forgive a human? And so what we're doing, and I think what Jesus is showing here, and it's typified when he starts with the word for, that shows it's connected to what was before it. That's why anytime there's a therefore or a for, you know that sentence can't stand on its own. It's a part of a context. And what Jesus is saying here, for, if you forgive others, you show that the Father has forgiven you. And if you don't, you show that you're not under his authority. So if we, listen to me, if we can't forgive others, then we are taking the place of God in our own life. And we are saying the commands that you have given me to forgive others, I just can't do. I can't do it. People say, I don't know if I can forgive them. I don't know if you're forgiven. What? What? Yeah, that's what he said. I, I, I just don't know. I mean, pastor, you don't know what they did to me. Do you know what you did to God? I just don't know if I can forgive them. Then you may not be forgiven. That's why the Bible says those who are forgiven much love much. The more I love shows the depth of how much I know I've been forgiven. And if I don't love that much, then I show I don't really understand how much I've been forgiven because I didn't just sin against a human. I sinned against a holy, holy, holy God. So what is Jesus getting at here? Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Jesus is getting at the fact that how you treat authority says everything about whether or not you understand rightly God is your father. If you don't understand that you're under the authority of God, then you will always come against every authority in your life because every authority in your life has been instituted by God. And if you're coming against the authority that God has set up, you're coming against God himself. And if you exalt yourself to the point where you think I can't forgive, then you're acting like your own authority. Let me give you my point and then we'll unpack it out of Matthew 8. Here's my point. Only when we are first under authority can we properly be in authority. Let me say it again. Only when we are first under authority can we properly be in authority. Now, I chose those two prepositions specifically because if you've been around here, you know I love prepositions. They don't get much play in the Bible. I think that's sad. It's never highlighted in my Bible study software, so I was like a throwaway word, but I think they're amazing. And that word there under, as you're gonna see in just a second in Matthew chapter eight, you can go ahead and flip over two chapters to Matthew chapter eight. We're gonna look at an unbelievable story. That word there under, in this context that you're about to see that I put in the point is called a preposition of location. And what that means is it's the location, it's the locale, it's where you are. And so if you are not in the location of being under authority, then you can never properly be in the location of being in authority. Because those who are in authority without being under authority become their own authority. And Jesus is saying, if you act like that, then you're not under the authority of the Father. 
Now, look at Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to show you what I mean here. Matthew chapter 8. This is an amazing story to me, um, and one that a, a lot of times doesn't get a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say respect because it's the Bible, but you don't hear as much about it. It's kind of one of those stories that you hear maybe sometimes, but when I was reading it this week, it just floored me, and I'm going to show you why it floored me, and I think it's important that it comes pretty close after what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 6, and this is a story of a centurion that came to Jesus. So look at this, Matthew chapter eight. We're gonna start in verse five, work our way down to verse 10. He said, when he, that's Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him and said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he, Jesus, said to him, I will come and heal him. So it's centurion, remember, you understand Israel's under Roman occupation at this time. A centurion is a leader in the Roman army, and the word centurion, where we get our word century, means a hundred, so he would have about a hundred soldiers underneath him. And so he comes to Jesus, he's not of the same ethnicity of Jesus, he comes to Jesus and says, my servant is at home paralyzed. And then Jesus says, I'll come heal him. And then look at this, verse eight, look at this man's response. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too, T-O-O, for I too am a man under what? If you're new, I'd like for you to call and respond. Let's try that again. For I too am a man under what? Authority, Authority with soldiers under me. Now listen to this, continues, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now listen to verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, you need to understand the gravity of what Jesus is saying here. This is a Roman soldier that is there oppressing, militarily speaking, the Israelites. And he walks up to Jesus and says, Lord, I too am one under authority. I'm not worthy. I've got soldiers under me. Just say the word. And Jesus says, listen, I want y'all to understand something. I ain't seen faith like that in all of Israel. No Israelite has had faith like that. And Jesus, at this point, had already picked his disciples. He already had followers. And he's saying, listen, a, a person of an occupying government who's not even born into the family of God understands faith and authority better than all of y'all. He was marveling at this. The word marvel means to be amazed I don't know about you, but I want to have the kind of faith that amazes Jesus. Don't you? I want the kind of faith that Jesus goes, whoa. I ain't seen faith like that in all of Canton. I ain't seen faith like that in all of Jasper. I ain't seen faith like that in all of Georgia. I ain't seen faith like that in all evangelicals. What was it about this man's response that made Jesus marvel? What was it that made Jesus step back and say, truly, 
That word there truly in the Greek is literally the word amen. The way you spell truly in Greek is A-M-E-N. We just brought it over into English. And so when we say amen, we're speaking Greek and you didn't even know it. But normally we say amen at the end of a prayer, don't we? In Jesus' name, amen. And the reason why we're saying amen is not so we can just start eating, but we're concluding all the prayers, right? That's the only word you're listening for, let's be honest. Amen, okay, all right. But the reason why we say amen is because we're saying truly. What I just said is true. But Jesus says it on the front end, and he had a habit of doing this. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. Jesus would amen his own points before he ever said them. That's how you know he was charismatic. You're like, oh, no, no, no. You don't understand the word charismatic is literally the Greek word. It means charis is grace and matic is gift. And so when you see the word grace gift and talks about it in 1 Corinthians, what it's saying is the Holy Spirit empowers this in you. Again, you were charismatic and didn't even know it. And so Jesus wasn't afraid to say Amen. So what I'm saying to you is don't be afraid to say amen. amen. Thank you. Last service was, I had to say it again. Thank you, Jasper. I know you said it. But Jesus says, amen. And then he saying, what I'm about to say to you is true. And what's amazing is Jesus turns to his followers and says it. He turned to those following him and said, truly, I say to you, no one in Israel has faith like that. Why would he say it to his followers? It's almost because he wanted his followers to get what that dude just said. Did y'all, did y'all hear what he just said? I'm talking like the followers are here, right? Did y'all hear that? That man understood something about following that y'all ain't got yet. What was it? It was how the centurion understood Authority. That's how he understood authority. Three statements he says that are remarkable statements that I want to highlight. The first statement he says, Lord, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. Notice he did not say, Lord, I'm just a worthless piece of junk. I'm just white trash. Lord, I'm just worthless. No, he's not talking about his worth as a human being. And again, this is what we fail to understand in our enlightened mind. When we take God out of the equation, then we inherently lose our worth, so we have to build up people's worth. What the centurion is saying here is, listen, I understand something. You are more worthy than me. I'm not worthy to have you. Now, he says to have you come into my house, and that word can be literal or metaphorical. Obviously, he meant it literally, but it also can mean to come into my presence, to come into my life. I'm not worthy to have a relationship with you. And so the basis of everything that the centurion asked for was on the worth of who Jesus was, not who he was. I'm not worthy. This is why I think this is so important. You know what that shows? It shows that he understands divine authority. Jesus has inherent worth. Jesus is worthy because of the fact he's Jesus. I'm not worthy because I'm not Jesus. So Jesus marveled 
at the fact that the centurion understood he wasn't worth, he, he wasn't holy, holy, holy. He rightly understood himself. He didn't exalt himself. Then he says a second statement, for I too am a man under authority. Now think about this. Why in the world would he say that to Jesus? When you say the word to, T-O-O, you're saying it saying like, you are under authority, I too am under authority. So what's interesting is the centurion understood, okay, you are inherently worth more, you are worthy, I'm not worthy, but you too are under authority. So the centurion recognized that Jesus was too one under authority. That's a preposition of location. Now you might think, okay, why in the world does that matter? Here's why it matters. Because Jesus had a habit of saying things like this. I only see what I see my father, I only do what I see my father doing. I'm not here to do my will, but the will of my father. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours. So Jesus was under the authority of his father. I don't do anything of my own will. I don't do anything of my own authority. I only do what the father tells me. I only do what I see the father doing. So Jesus was one under authority. Scholars and theologians have wrestled with this for years and said, see, even Jesus understood himself as to be less than God. No, because Jesus would also say weird statements like this. When the disciples came to him and say, just show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. Jesus goes, what do you mean show you the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So is Jesus authority or under authority? Yes. Right? That's what John 1 says. He was with God and he was God. And you can't break those two apart. He is equal with God. He is God. But the way the relationship works is the father is first among equals. And the responsibility of the son is to be the exact image of the exact nature of God. And so Jesus could say, if you see me, you see the father. Why? Because the son does what the father does. We're one. But the centurion recognized the fact that Jesus, too, was under authority. The centurion was under authority. He had command of a hundred soldiers, but he was under the authority of a tribune, which had all kinds of centurions underneath him. And then he says the third statement, with soldiers under me. Divine authority, human authority, in authority. I'm not worthy. I'm under authority, I got soldiers underneath me. It was that understanding of authority that Jesus marveled at. We would say in church world, this man gets it. He gets it. He gets it because number one, he understands he's not God. Number two, he understands he's under the authority that God has set up. And so that is what enables him to properly be in authority. This is why I said my point. It's not until we're first under authority that we can properly be in authority. All authority, Romans 13 tells us, is established by God because all authority is from God. So here's where I'm going with all of this. You say, what does this have to do with that prayer? What this has to do with that prayer is 
if you act like your own authority and therefore you are not subject to God as your authority or the authorities that God sets up, then you are rebelling against God. Let me say it like this. To rebel against authority is to rebel against God. That's what Romans 13 says. Because God is the only one who set up, he is inherent authority. God doesn't have to ask anybody about what they think about what he should do. He's God. He's sovereign. He's self-sustaining. He needs no one else. And so he set up authority in this world. And we call those laws, the laws of nature. But there's also institutions that God sets up. And here's what I want us to see. Our response to those authorities prove whether or not we understand God as our authority. Let me give you some examples. When God first created, the Bible says in the beginning, created all this stuff. Then he created man and woman. He created man first. He gave man the command. Don't touch the tree. Work the ground. Procreate. Woman, he creates. And the woman is subject to the leadership of the man. Paul affirms this in Ephesians 5 when he says, wives love your husbands, and that verse that every wife loves, wives submit to your husbands. But what you see in the beginning is Eve wasn't just rebelling against, rebelling against God, she was rebelling against the authority of her husband because God had given the command to him. And so she went around what he said. Now you say, well, he was standing there. Oh yeah, he abdicated his authority. He was the delegated authority that God had set up, and now we are in the situation we're in. So in the family, you need to understand something. In the family is the first institution that God created. Marriage was his idea. This is why I say all the time, we can't define it. We can't redefine it because it's God's deal. God sets up marriage, and here's what he says. The man is the authority, now, that doesn't mean he's better. It doesn't mean he's awesome. It just means he's the first among equals. He has a role as a leader. And you can reject that authority, and if you do, you're rejecting what God said. Let me give you another example, one that you, I know that you'll naturally just agree with more. <laughs> God also said, children, be subject to your parents. Right? I told you. I told you. You'd like that one. Be subject to your parents. And so kids, hear me. God believed that so much, he put it in the top 10. It's in the Ten Commandments. Right? Right there with don't murder. You think God's serious about understanding? What are the first two commandments? All about God's authority. You have no other gods before me, no images before me. No other thing in your life can take my place. Then he says, and this is how you're gonna do authority. The first one, be subject to your parents. So kids, hear me. Teenagers, God has put the authority of your parents over you. And he did that for your good. And hear me, if we don't submit to that, then we are rebelling against God. Let me give you another example, government. We wrestle with this one. Again, Romans 13 says, be subject to the governing authorities because there is no authority up but from God and so God put them there. He established them there to avenge injustice. 
So pay your taxes, he says. You're under authority. I don't want to pay my taxes. All right, you'll go to jail. It's that simple. And how we respond to authority shows whether or not we understand what God set up. You say, well, I don't like my authority. (laughs) Hold on. I'm not saying you can't have your convictions, but here's what I'm saying. If you're the type of person that constantly comes up against authority, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the government, or whether it's in the church, you are outside of God's will for your life. It's just that simple. Because the kind of faith that amazes Jesus is the kind of faith that understands that God is the authority and he has delegated authority all over the place. And if I submit to them, then I'm submitting to him. And here's what we need to see. Flip over now quickly to to Hebrews chapter 13. I don't have much time. I would take another 30 minutes if I could. Kids and parking team would hate me though. So Hebrews chapter 13, two verses I want you to see. Hebrews chapter 13. The writer of Hebrews says this, verse seven. I'm just gonna go ahead and you can still turn there. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The word they remember means to think about and then respond. So remember, respond. It's think and act. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Now, he is talking specifically here about leaders in the church. And this is another authority that God has set up. The authority of the church is not dependent upon the authority of the state. We need to understand this. This is why I'm so proud to say that Protestants in our history, we lobbied for the separation of of government and state, for the separation, or sorry, not government and state, of state and church. But here's what we need to understand. The whole reason why our founders lobbied for that was not to keep the church out of the state, it was to keep the state out of the church. We've totally flipped that today. And so I believe in separation of church and state, but I believe both of them are instituted by God. And so there's state power and authority. There's church authority. And the authority of the church is not delegated to it by the state. It is delegated to it by the word. That's why he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Now, I want you to hear me say something because inherently... This could seem very self-serving to you. Because as a pastor, I'm about to tell you, remember your pastors. Those who speak the word of God to you. But I want you to understand the humbling nature of what it means to be a pastor. You want to know what keeps me holier than anything else? It's not just the fear of God, it's you. Because of verses like this, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to look at my life, any pastor's life that it's here on staff, and consider the outcome. Okay, how they're living now, where's that going to take, where's that going? And then it says imitate their faith. The scariest thing in the world is that God just said, follow me as I follow Jesus. This is why Paul said in Galatians, not many of you should be teachers. 
and shouldn't. I want you to understand the weighty responsibility of authority. Let me, let me put it in another example. I've got, a, again, I have a 14-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter. You understand how weighty it is to tell my son, son, follow me as I follow Christ. One of the best things in the world for my holiness was having a kid. Because now I'm like, that joker is gonna wanna be like me. I better get my junk together. Because he's gonna do as I do. And so Paul well, I don't know if it's Paul and the writer of Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews says, consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Here's the weighty call of what it means to be in leadership. is to say, listen, those who are following me are going to end up where I end up, and so am I gonna end up in the right place? So why Jesus turned to his followers and said, you hear what he just said? He understood authority. Then it goes on. Look at verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Stronger language here. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now it doesn't just say remember your leaders, consider the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. Now it says obey your leaders. Submit to them. <laughs> Be subject to them. Why? Because they're perfect? No. Because they're keeping watch over your soul. Now this word here over is not a preposition of location. It's a preposition of reference. What that means is, as a pastor, I am not over you in location. I don't have a status that you don't have. That's why I have to tell people, listen, yeah, I can pray for you, but you got, I mean, like, I don't have the bat phone to Jesus. You got the same thing, right? You're a priest, priesthood of all believers. You can pray to him yourself. You don't have to pray to me, and he only listens to me. No, we're on the same level. I'm not over but it's a preposition of reference, which means pastors are simply the first among equals, just like husbands and wives. This is why what qualifies me to be a pastor is how I leave my wife, how I leave my home, which always amazed me with our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church who have priests who are not married. I'm like, that's the one thing that qualifies them to be a priest. So if I can't leave my home well, I have no right to lead the church well. Why? Because if I'm telling my son, follow me, and it ain't going to end well, why in the world would God put me in charge for the rest of the church to say, follow me, and it ain't going to end well? You with me when I say that? But it's a weighty call. Why? Because I'll give an account for that. I will stand before God one day and give an account for everything that I said to you. For every direction that I let us down, for every, everything that we did as a church. Why? Because this is my church and I'm my people. And the only way, and I want you to hear me, and this is why I'm stressing this. I firmly believe the only reason why God put someone like me in authority is simply because, not because I was awesome, it's because I've just simply obeyed the authority I was under. The Bible says it like this, humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Exalt yourself as an authority, you'll be humbled. Why? Because those who 
are first under authority is what qualifies them to be in authority. Let me give you a personal example in my own life. Before Lindsay and I came here, we were working at a church in South Texas. I was a student pastor. I'd been there for five years, and I had told my pastor when I came, I said, I want to be here for five years, build a student ministry from the ground up because it was a church plant. Then I want to go plant a church somewhere. He's like, that's awesome. We have a vision to plant churches. And so I came into the door with that understanding, and I met him through my seminary, through Southwest. South, Southwestern Seminary, and, and so I said, I'll come be your student pastor for five years, and I'm going to go plant a church. Great. We got to the five-year mark. We had a conversation. Yeah, I think it's time to go plant a church, so they paid for us to go fly to a couple different cities, and Lindsay and I thought that the South didn't need churches because there was plenty of churches, so we were going northeast, man, so we flew into Pittsburgh, drove to Cleveland, to Columbus, Ohio, thought we were going to go somewhere up north, you know, where we could really relate to people well, and... Um, <laughs> And so that's what I thought. And so we're, we're driving around all these cities, praying, 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 God, what do you want us to do? And we so clearly heard God say this, what I want you to do is to shut your mouth and go back to Corpus Christi, Texas and submit to your pastor. That's what I want you to do. What? No, God, you want us to plant a church. You want us to do this? And so clearly, I just felt God impressed me. I can't trust you with that yet. Because you haven't first submitted to the authority I've put over you. So we went back home. I talked to my pastor. And you gotta understand, Corpus Christi is the armpit of Texas. People don't move there unless God calls them to, right? Or they were born there. And so I went back to my pastor and I said, I'm sorry. I thought I knew better than you. I thought I could plant a church better than you. But I want you to understand something. God told me to shut my mouth and come submit myself to you. And I'm not doing that begrudgingly. I said, I will work to serve your vision for the rest of my life. And if no one ever knows my name, I don't care. And it was in that process that God began to prepare us to then be in authority. And during that time, I was reading a book that I would highly recommend to all of you called A Tale of Three Kings. It's a story of Saul, David, and his son Absalom. And there's a line in that book that slayed me. See, David was anointed king. And then God put Saul in charge. For seven years, David was the king. But he was serving the vision of the man over him. And there was a line in the book that said this. God puts King Saul's over you to kill the King Saul in you. Let me say that again. God puts King Saul's, people in authority that you think don't deserve to be there, he puts them over you to kill that same spirit in you. And when, when I read that, I was like, that's it. Humbly, I submit. And then it wasn't too long afterwards. We got a phone call. Hey, are you interested in being the next pastor at Revolution Church? Where's that? It, it's in Canton, Georgia. Where's that? All I know is Canton, Texas, the largest flea market in the world. I don't know Canton, Georgia. And I firmly believe now I firmly believe that God would not let me start a church. You want to know why? Because I would be too tempted to think it was mine. 
Here's what I'm saying to you. If you constantly come up against the authority that God sets in your life, then you are limiting what God can do in your life. God has places and positions for you that he can't give you yet because he can't trust them with you. God wants his people in leadership. I want you to know that. Leadership is not a bad thing. It's a biblical thing. And he has a tendency to put leaders in positions that don't deserve it. I mean, David was the youngest of all of his brothers. He was small. Saul was handsome and tall. David was short and ugly, probably. They called him Rudy. We don't really know what that means. I don't know. I'm the youngest of three. Nothing in me deserves to be here. This is why I'm under no illusion. God takes the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. But you need to understand something about leadership. God is in leadership. And when you come against leadership, you're coming against God. This is why in Numbers chapter 12, when Moses was leading the people of Israel, his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, who were both older than him. You wanna talk about the weirdness of God? He takes the younger brother and puts him in charge. Jacob I loved. And then Moses faces this dilemma where Aaron and Miriam come against him and then God speaks to Aaron and, Mis- uh, Aaron and Miriam. I can't speak this morning. Romans 12, eight, listen to what he says. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant, Moses? Why were you not afraid of the leadership I put over you? My friends, what I'm saying to you is if you will submit to the leaders over you, not just in the church, but in your home, and you'll do that with joy, not with (laughs) groaning. That's the translation. It means complaining. It means sighs. Hey, will you go clean your room? You know when my son does that, what I want to do? Oh, I I can't wait to put you in charge of my house, son. No, you know what I say? Go sleep outside, sucker. (laughs) You don't want to clean your room? That's a blessing to have a room. You go sleep in the trees, and then you come back. (laughs) See what I'm saying? I don't really say that, but that's what I think. (laughs) But your response to authority will determine how high in authority you go. Why? Because if you can't forgive others, you're not forgiven. You're acting like your own authority. So why did Jesus put that in the prayer? Because how we love and submit to others shows whether or not we understand how God loves us and we submit to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Even verses that are hard to either understand or accomplish. Verses like wives submit to your husbands. Verses like husbands love your wife. Verses like children obey your parents. Verses like be subject to the governing authority. Verses like obey obey your leaders and submit to them. 
God, help us to know that all those verses, even though they're hard, are there for our good. They are there because those in authority over us are keeping watch over us. And they are working with you, with your word and with your spirit to grow in us the faith that amazes you. And so God, help us to have the kind of faith that amazes you. Help us to have the kind of response to authority that you have delegated over us that shows that you're our father. And God, I pray right now, if there's anybody in the house or listening or watching online who has not come to the place like the centurion did where they have said, I'm not worthy because they understood that they have offended a holy God. God, anybody that hasn't come to that place right now, would you save them? Because that's the only response when we understand the good news. Because we're not worthy. But you count us righteous in Christ. You make us worthy. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. So God, I pray right now, if anybody has not trusted Jesus, I pray they would do that. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never come to a place in your life where you have bowed your knee and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, come to that place like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 where you say, whoa, it's me, I'm not worthy. But then to have God make you clean. That's what it means to be saved. So if you wanna trust Jesus, confess your sins, believe he was raised from the dead, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me to yourself, not out loud, it goes like this. Say, God, thank you for loving me, that you sent your son in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me, forgive me, count me as worthy because of Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking. If you just prayed that with me, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. Thank you. Just for a second. We've got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. Then the rest of us understand that how we respond to others shows whether or not we understand how God responded to us. And understand that God transfers authority to people in our life to humble us. But if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. So take a position of humility towards those that are appointed to watch over your soul. And let them do it with joy because I promise it'll go better for you. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.